Father, we, uh, as Roger so, um, so graciously led us this night, we want to direct our whole attention to you, all of our affections, all of our thoughts, even our physical body with our hands raised to you. We raise our hearts and our minds to you, and we want this all to be about you. We want to hear your voice. simple prayer for yourself that God would speak to you just like a wind that blows through this place that God would speak and his word would blow through blow through in power yeah ask God to speak to you pray for someone that you came with ask God to speak to them maybe someone that you're standing next to or sitting next to that you would pray for me that God would speak through me and it would be true and clear. Father, we thank you. We trust you. We ask you to use this time. Use this time. Speak to our hearts and change us. Rescue us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a seat. What are the three words that we are talking about all week? Remember the future. That's good. Remember the future. Can you say that with me? Remember the future. Now, um, this is again a question I want you to think about. Don't answer out loud. But think about what future we're talking about. Who holds that future? Who wrote that future? Is it um, already secure? Is it already done as if it was the past? Think about that. Think. And if it wasn't, that's, there's no good reason for us to be able to remember it, to look forward to it as if it was already done, already said, but that is the case. We are here this week to focus on the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the final book of our Bible, and it is the most exciting, okay? It's also the craziest. You've read it you know. If you haven't, you'll probably see it as we continue to study, okay? Already last night, we talked about four creatures that had six wings and eyes all over, remember? A lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Very, very strange. They were singing a song, and then they sang a second song, and we talked about that. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his glory, and we talked about the idea that a throne is in the middle of our lives. We saw that throne last night, and God himself is on the throne in all of his glory, We're continuing that story. God is still on the throne. And yet we come to the most dramatic. um, I get emotional even thinking about it. I have a hard time back there worshiping, keeping it together. Because um, the text that I'm going to share with you tonight is just one of my favorites. I think it's the most dramatic chapter of Scripture in the entire Bible. Um, There is so much at stake. Every time the wind blows and you get excited about it, just ask God to blow through this place, and we're going to do that. You know that that's often a symbol 
of his presence in the Bible. Clouds would cover the, the sky when the glory of the Lord is coming. And the wind will blow through and the earth would shake. That means that he's here with us, all right? He controls the wind. And so um, this is the most dramatic chapter of Scripture, and I'd love to share it with you. Um, if We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5, and we're continuing on right where we left off last night. Each of the mornings we're together, we're reading those letters that he wrote to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And in our evenings, we're progressing through the rest of the book, Okay. So we're in chapter 5, and I want you to see this. We're just going to take it a couple verses at a time. Chapter 5 of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says, I saw, this is John, I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. You see, we're picked up right where we left off. This is God in all of his glory sitting on the throne. You remember there's something like a sea of glass around it, like crystal. There are peals of thunder and lightning. And he couldn't quite describe it. And then those creatures were, were flying around him singing, this is the same throne. And I saw him who sits on the throne and he had a book written inside and on the back. It was really a scroll sealed up with seven seals. This scroll, this book is written. Um, my wife's from Australia. We would say it's chock-a-block in Australia. That means it's written on every single space. There is no margin. There is, it's written from cover to cover, front to back, side to side, top to bottom, okay? And what it contains are the steps to the end. This book, this scroll sealed with seven scrolls is how we get to the kingdom of God. It's how we get to the end of the brokenness and the curse. It's how we kill death and how Jesus does it, of course, but that's how we get there. That's what's contained in this scroll, okay? Whose hand is it in? It's in the hand of God who sits on the throne, okay? I don't want you to miss that. That the future that is written in stone already is in the hand of God. It is not a gamble, it is not a game of craps. It's not a, a turkey shoot. It's not a wish list. It's not a, oh, I hope this is the way it turns out. The book is already written, and it's in the hand of God. In verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And what happens after that verse is the most dramatic thing that I can see and I've ever studied, ever read in the scriptures. Because this is how we get to the end. This is how we get to the kingdom of God. This is how we all get our inheritance with Jesus at the center. This is how we get to um, be free of the corruption and sin that is plaguing us even in this very moment in our flesh and in our mind. This is how we get free of the night. This is how we get free of the curse. This is how we get free. And the angel comes and the scroll is in God's hand and he asks the question, who is worthy to open it up and to start the beginning of the end? Who is worthy? Verse three. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. You see that? 
The angel came and asked a question, who is worthy to bring us to the end? And the question is answered. There is nobody, nobody on earth, not any creature, not any human. There's nobody under the earth. There is no one anywhere that's worthy. In verse 4, then I, that's John, began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it. You see, he wants, he wants the end. He wants to get to the kingdom of God. He wants to be uh, free. He wants to be in the end. He wants to realize the future. Don't just remember it. I want to be there. I want to have it now. I want that to start. And he starts weeping because nobody can open the scroll to start the beginning of the end. And one of the elders, these are one of the guys that are sitting on those 24 thrones around the throne. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, there's a lion. And it's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. You see what's happening is we see this throne and God has this scroll in his hand with seven seals. Um, that, that is the way that they did it in those days. That is the most secure document. It's the most important document and it's in the hand of God. And we conduct a worldwide search, okay? We're not searching for America's next top model or the next American Idol or the next superstar. We're searching for the best creature ever, the only one worthy to open the scroll and we look everywhere we look all over the earth and above the earth and under the earth this is a universal search and no one is found and john starts weeping and one of the elders says wait there is one there is one he's a lion from the tribe of judah don't answer the question but do you know who he's talking about okay he's the root of david in verse 6, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In verse 7, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You see what's happening? That the crowd breaks in the back. If you've ever been in a massive auditorium, if you've ever been at a football game or a baseball game with tens of thousands of people, I want you to multiply that by a billion, okay? And there is people as far as you can see and everybody's looking and everybody's weeping because there's no one able to open that scroll and the crowd parts and there in the back is a lamb that's matted with dried blood. It's a dead lamb that's standing up. And he begins to slowly walk down that aisle to the throne where God is. You see, this individual is a lion and a lamb. And he's a man. He is God. These are all of the beautiful images of Jesus Christ. The one that we saw in the first chapter of Revelation. He's walking the aisle. He's a lamb as if slain, matted in blood. Do you remember where the lamb comes from? I want you to take back and, 
this scripture, you can stay up here, we can take back in time, you go back to the first days of Jesus' ministry. You know, he lived probably 25, 30 years uh, without doing any public teaching. He was just being a good son and a good brother and a good worker and a good follower of God, a good worshiper, a perfect human. You remember where he started his ministry? He was with his cousin, right? With his cousin John, who dressed like a wacko, ate locust brittle, remember? Um, he was hanging out down in the River Jordan and baptizing people, and Jesus comes walking by. And what does John say the first time that he sees him in this context? He points up his hand from the bottom. He's standing in the river, and he points up onto the riverbank, and he says, behold. What does he say? The Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Can you imagine if you were there, everybody stops what they're doing and they turn up and look at a man, a normal looking man, not a handsome guy, nothing special to look at, just looks like everybody else. And they're like, what on earth are you talking about? John, a lamb that will take away the sins of the world. What kind of language is that? What's he talking about? He's talking about a sacrifice. Lambs were sacrificed in the Old Testament. You know what's interesting? There is never a lamb in the Old Testament that takes away sins. Not the lamb on the day of atonement. Not any lamb that was sacrificed in the Old Testament ever took away sins. And so this is a sacrifice from God. He said the lamb of God that takes away sins. But it's better than any sacrifice we've ever seen. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And everybody's like, wow, really? And then Jesus comes down and is baptized by John. And that's the start of his ministry. He begins to teach and call his 12 best friends to be with him. And he loved them to the end. Even Judas, who never believed, he loved him to the end. This is the language. And here is the scene. Now we're in heaven. John is seeing it. No one can open the scrolls, but then a lamb comes, right? Verse 9. And they, the elders and the creatures, began to sing a new song, saying this, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And purchased for men with your blood, purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. We can stop right there. I want you to leave it right there, because... Um, what we've been doing each night is trying to give you a, a really big picture of God, okay? So uh, we're going to continue that. I want you to sit back and relax, okay? I don't want you to take notes. I don't want you to, I'm not going to ask you any questions to answer, okay? I'm going to tell you some stories and show you some pictures, and I want you to sit back in your heart, in your mind, and I want you to go, wow, okay? I'm going to start with Moses, Moses had the craziest question that he ever asked anybody, and he asked it to God, okay? In Exodus chapter 33, he's meeting with God like a friend would a friend, which is freaky. I don't have any idea what that was like. Um, and so here is Moses meeting with God, and he asked him one day, like he would a friend, he said, hey, God, I want to see all of your glory. Can you imagine a question like that? God, I want to see all of your glory. And I bet you God kind of chuckled, okay? 
And he basically said to Moses, bro, you can't handle that, okay? You can't handle that. But thanks for asking, okay? So here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in this little cleft of the rock and I'll pass by you and I'll let you see the train of my robe that comes at the end. And even that is gonna be almost too much for you to handle, okay? And that's what he did. And his face glowed for a very long time. That was freaky, okay? See the glory of God. He says, show me your glory, God. David, a long time later, he wrote a song that said, you know what? The heavens are telling of the glory of God. All we have to do is look up and we see God's glory. And they say it all the time. They never stop shouting the glory of God. And it goes everywhere and everybody can hear it, although there's no sound. Everybody can see and hear and know about the glory of God just by looking at what he's done in the creation. So that's what we'll do, all right? I'm gonna show you some images, some very, very big things. And then we'll go to some very, very small things, okay? This first one, this is Cassiopeia. This is a constellation in our night sky that's 11,000 light years away. Um, Cassiopeia A exploded a long time ago in a supernova, and this is what's left. The crazy thing about that, if you go back to that, Gary, the crazy thing about that is this sphere of gas, it looks rather small because it can fit on our screen. It is 10 light years from one side to the other. That means that you could put our solar system in there hundreds of thousands of times. That's how big this guy is, okay? 10 light years from one side of that purple to the other side of the pink. That's light traveling in a vacuum over a year. That's 5.88 trillion miles times 10. That's a long way. It's a big guy, okay? This next one, I have to be honest with you, I have no idea what that is, okay? It just looks really, really cool. Um, it's, a, it's a planetary nebula in the middle, so there's all sorts of gravity and force happening in the middle, and there's so much force coming together that these two exhaust vents are throwing gas and dust outward. And we caught it from our vantage point at this really, really interesting angle. These exhaust vents, okay? This next one is a group of galaxies that are getting really, really close together and their gravitational pull is acting on each other and they're going to, given enough time, collide into one another and create an even bigger galaxy once they get all their stuff sorted out, okay? It's gonna take a little while. This next one is not just two galaxies, but it's five. This one is called Stefan's Quintet. Five galaxies that are all colliding together. They're coming together because they have such a massive mass in them. They have such massive gravity and the gravity is pulling them all together. And again, given enough time, uh, they will become one supermassive galaxy. This is 3,000, uh, excuse me, 300 million light years away. And you can see that in the constellation Pegasus, if you know where to look. We're going to get down a little 
smaller. I told you that we have really good neighbors, and somebody wanted you to wanted to see where that comet hit Jupiter. Can I show you? Um, the comet Shoemaker-Levy was very, very big, and it got sucked up into the orbit of Jupiter before it hit Earth, and it went around for a very long time, and then began to break up. This is the biggest piece hitting the southern hemisphere of Jupiter. For a very long time, this is in 1994, in a very long time, it was there. It actually sent up a plume of fire when it hit, even though there's probably no solid core in Jupiter. I have no idea how that happened. But that spot was much more visible than the giant red spot, the giant hurricane on Jupiter for a very long time. That's where the comet hit. Um, And I show you this next deal is uh, a solar eclipse. And that is the corona of our sun. You know that uh, from our vantage point, um, the sun is 400 times further away then um, our, uh, let me say that again. Um, the distance where the sun is and the way we see it and the, the distance of the moon is and the way we see it um, are exactly perfect. So that our appearance, um, the distance from us to the moon is such that our distance from us to the sun is 400 times greater than our distance from us to the, to the moon. Does that make sense? So when the two come together, they're exactly the same size. It's the only place in the solar system that that can happen. And so when they come together in exactly the same size, we have a perfect solar eclipse. And these perfect solar eclipses teach us a lot um, about life on Earth. This one, what do you think that is? That's a shadow of the perfect solar eclipse on Earth, taken from the space station. That's the shadow that the moon makes in a perfect eclipse on the earth. Um, God has set it up where everything is perfect for us to determine things, okay? This one, you'll know what this one is. I want to tell you about this guy, yeah? This guy's awesome, okay? You know these guys have long necks. This, is, of course, is a giraffe. I want you to think about when you lay on the ground, when you lay on the ground for a long time and then hop up, what happens? You get a little lightheaded, right? That's because all the blood has rushed from your head. Now think about a giraffe, okay? You got a 10-foot neck, and you need to drink some water. And you also need to be careful because lions are around, all right? So they spread their legs, and they tick this head way, way, way down to drink the water. Now all the blood from the body rushes down that long neck and blacks them out, and they fall into the pool and drown, right? That's what that would happen, okay? But not in giraffes, because there is a special muscle in their head that soaks up all that blood that rushes down the neck and keeps it there, okay? Just in case. And so they're drinking water, everything's okay. Now what happens when you raise your head and all the blood goes and you pass out and the lions eat you, right? There would be no giraffes, okay? But that special muscle, when they raise their head, squeezes and all the blood rushes down back through their neck and they're perfectly fine. Giraffes never get lightheaded, all right? They're a marvel of creation, This next guy is crazy. It's a bad picture, but you know what I'm talking about? This is an angler fish. (laughs) You've seen it on uh, Finding Nemo. Okay, yes, exactly. This is an angler fish. Let me tell you what happens. This little thing on his head um, is called a symbiotic relationship. That means that there are other 
animals living in that thing on its head that has nothing to do with the fish. Those animals happen to be bacteria, and those bacteria happen to be bioluminescent bacteria that they cause light, okay? And so when that thing is flat back on his back, the light is off. So he communicates somehow to the bacteria, I don't want you to shine now, and he'll throw it up over here, and the light comes on, and then he'll throw it back and the light goes off. He'll throw it over here, and the light comes on, and he throws it back, and the light goes off. What do you think that attracts? Smaller fish that are going to have a very bad day, okay? And so they turn the light on, and the fish go, oh, what is that? And boom, over. Thank you very much, okay? Because the angler fish is fishing for other fish. You know what's crazy is we bring these guys up and begin to dissect them and try to understand it. And the greatest evolutionary biologists on the planet have no idea how the bacteria get in there. They have no idea how that relationship between fish and bacteria happens. The anglerfish, I love him. I wouldn't want to meet him, but I love him, okay? The next picture. This is a question... Think about it, rhetorical question, meaning I don't want you to answer it out loud, okay? I want you to think about what that is. Don't answer it out loud. I want you to think about what that is. That's a microscopic image of something, I'll give you a clue, that happens in half of the population. If we will advance this in time, the next image will give it away. That first image was... That first image was a fertilized human egg in a fallopian tube, and this is you, a couple months old, okay? The next image is you, about nine months old, okay? Talk about the pinnacle of creation, right? Um, Now, we've looked through the telescope, We've looked through the naked eye at some of the animals like binoculars. Let's go to the microscope. You want to do that? This next image. Ladies, you love this. That's an eyelash. Okay. You color those things and treat them poorly with mascara. All right. This next image. Um, Any idea? That, I'll give you, this is a gross one, that's the bacteria on your tongue, okay? Is that fun or what? Yeah. You can lick your friend later. Um, The next image, (laughs) ah, you can read, very good. It is uh, good human bone material under an electron microscope. That is what your bones are made of. The next one. This is one of my favorite things ever. It's not just blood. Very good. It's a blood clot. A blood clot is very, very important. There are um, not only platelets, which are um, one of the, the white things in the image. They put off a special protein, which forms a spider web, the yellow stuff, in the image, and that is always present in your blood, but it has to be turned on, and it has to be turned on at the right time. So if it's always turned on, all your blood freezes in place and you die, right? If it's never turned on, then you get a paper cut and it never stops bleeding and you die, all right? And so what has to happen in your blood clotting cascade 
is one thing has to talk to another, has to talk to another, and it all has to be turned on in picoseconds. Do you know what a picosecond is? A picosecond, a picosecond is the amount of time it takes light to travel the width of a human hair. The speed of light over the width of a human hair, a picosecond, a very, very, very small amount of time. All of these things happen in picoseconds, okay? And so your blood knows in any part of your body when it's cut, and this thing will start forming in a matter of seconds after the picoseconds and all these things transfer and correlate and communicate to each other. This is a marvel of God's creation. Next image. Salmonella. These are the guys I told you about last night. Remember the engine, the motor? I'm going to show you a picture of that motor. I told you that it can go 100,000 RPMs in this direction, stop in a quarter turn and go 100,000 RPMs in the other direction. It's the most efficient machine in the universe. It's water-cooled. It has a clutch. Do you remember? Remember I told you? I'm going to show you a picture, okay? This next image um, on the right is an electron micrograph image of that basal apparatus on the end of a salmonella bacteria, okay? The next image is... Um, an idea of what those proteins look like when you put that image together and you try to understand the rotor on this machine. That's on the single-celled organism, one of the tiniest animals on planet Earth. The most efficient machine that we've ever found. Okay? The last image. DNA. Very good. Can I tell you something about DNA? DNA has trillions of letters of code in each strand, okay? It is the richest source of information in the universe. The richest source of information in the universe. If you took a pinhead size amount of DNA, a regular stick pin that has those bright red or blue um, green balls at the end, you took that much DNA, the amount of information in that much DNA would fill enough books stacked on top of each other to go to, from here to the surface of the moon. It is the richest source of information in the universe. Do you know how many cells you have in your body? Average human, give or take, has about 100 trillion cells. And you're thinking, I got a few hundred trillion cells more than the average guy, and that's okay. Um, hundred trillion cells in the average human body. If you unraveled the DNA in each of those cells, if you unraveled it from its spiral and the introspiral that's in that, if you unraveled it, do you know how long each strand of DNA in each cell would be? About six feet. So about six feet times a hundred trillion we could tie our DNA end to end and go from the surface of the earth to the moon and back 1,500 times. That's how much information is in your body. That's how much information is in every cell in your body. DNA. You think God knew what he was doing? And so from the telescope to the binoculars looking around, down to the microscope. Everywhere we look, we see perfection 
and beauty and glory. And we see a creator God who knew exactly what he was doing and in parts had a lot of fun, like the giraffe or the anglerfish or some of you maybe, okay? And so God had a lot of fun. And when he when we begin to discover more and more things and look through the microscope or look through the telescope or discover more with our natural eye, all that we ever see, all that we ever find is more and more intelligence, more and more design, more and more beauty, more and more glory. And so when Moses said, God, would you show me your glory? God could have said, just look around, Moses. Just look up. Look at your fingerprints, put your finger on your throat and feel your heart beating. Look around. My glory is everywhere. My glory is everywhere. This is a glorious God. So what we've been trying to do for you each night during camp is to give you a time to sit back and relax and to think about a great, great, great big God. I told you the first night, that Jesus, the creator, is much, much bigger than you think. He's more involved than you think. He's better at what he does than you ever thought that he was, okay? Let's go back to um, Revelation and we'll finish. Revelation chapter five. Revelation chapter five, verse nine again. They sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Verse 11, and we'll be in. We're done these last few verses. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. And around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Myriads is something between 10,000 and 100,000. He's saying 100,000 times 100,000. And in John's day, they didn't have the concept of a million or a billion or a trillion. They didn't have the ideas of numbers that big. He's saying there are too many to count. They're everywhere. And they kept saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Isn't that beautiful? You know that in Hebrew, the perfect number is seven. Can you count the attributes as I read them out again? Can you count the attributes that they sing to him? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, one, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing, a perfect amount of attributes, just like we did earlier in our worship. A perfect amount of things that are ascribed to this lamb that's bloodied and matted. Worthy are you. In verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all things in them. You see, all the things that we've been talking about. All of the stars, all of the galaxies, all the birds of the air, all the creatures of the field, all the things that creep on the ground, everything that's in the sea. Every created thing. 
I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, which means yes, I agree, yes. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, here's what I want to tell you. There's only one response when you begin to see a God that big. You got it? When you begin to understand a God that big, there's only one way to respond to him. When you begin to enlarge your idea of who God is and what he has done and what he's capable of, there's only one logical and proper response. There's lots of bad responses. There's only one good one. And that is maybe not physically, but physically is good in your heart and your mind to fall down on your knees in front of a God that big and to say, in the throne of my life, only you are worthy to sit there. Only you are worthy to open the scrolls in this dramatic scene to usher in the beginning of the end. And only you are worthy to rule my life and make sense of it. That's the only proper response to a God that big. So many of us here tonight have been overwhelmed with these thoughts, with our own thoughts of all of our brokenness and sin. And we're going to give you a chance to respond tonight again. Um, as the band comes back up, we're going to do that. We don't want to do this in any way that um, manipulates you, give you an opportunity and say, again, this is a defining moment for you. Each of you as individuals, each of you as individual creatures of God for whom Jesus died, this is a defining moment for you to say, God, I've never believed all of this stuff, but I do tonight. I've tried to forgive myself by being good to make myself acceptable to you. Because that's what the world does. We all know that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, right? That's, the, that's what everybody believes. Unfortunately, that is the worst truth that has ever been claimed to be true because nothing like that is true. Good people don't go to heaven. And bad people don't go to hell, unfortunately. Okay? The only passage is through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the only way. I'm the door. Everyone who comes to the Father comes through me. And so you don't have to be good. He wants you to be good, but he wants you to clean you afterwards. So don't feel like if you're here that you're not worthy of God's love, that you're not worthy of his offer of salvation. Christ died for us while we were his enemies, while we hated him, while we did everything that he didn't want us to do. That's when he died for us. God's love and grace is so overwhelming and so magnificent and it's available upon request. It's a defining moment for some of you tonight. And so in a second, we're gonna pray together. And um, if that's you, if you're here tonight, looking me in the eye right now, face up, and you're saying, yeah, in your heart, you don't have to nod your head, you don't have to raise your hand, I'm not gonna embarrass you. If you're here and saying, and looking at me and saying, Scott, I think I'm that person. I don't think I've ever accepted what Jesus Christ has done for me. I don't think I've ever accepted his gift because that's what it is, a gift. We don't do anything to earn 
gifts. Okay? If that's you, then Jesus is here tonight saying, take it. I'm here offering the gift. I'm here offering it. I give you a chance to just say yes. Okay? Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father, if some of those students are here, even some adults, some counselors, whoever, some of these students are here saying, that's me. In their hearts, very simple. It's not the prayer that has any magic to it. It's not the prayer that does it, but we can exercise our faith in prayer by saying something like this. And you can repeat this in your heart. You may want to say it out loud. If you do it, a whisper, it doesn't matter. You can say, Jesus, I know that I've messed up because everybody has. I may not have messed up as much as the next person or I may have messed up more the next person. doesn't matter. I know that I need you and I believe tonight that there's only one way to be forgiven. There's only one way to get eternal life and abundant life and that is by putting my faith in you to forgive me and so that's what I do. I put my faith and my trust in you and what you have accomplished on the cross in the empty tomb for me. And in the next breath, I say, thank you. Thank you. Because you promise that when I put my faith in you, that you will forgive me and rescue me and save me. And when I do that, you keep your promise always. You never break it. You never go back on it. You never leave me orphaned. You're never going to forsake me. And so I say thank you. Thank you for rescuing me in this moment and forevermore. Thank you. Again, if you're a person who's already prayed a prayer like that, you're a person who would say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a believer in Jesus. But my life is a wreck. I've made it a wreck. And I've given up on following him. I still believe, but I'm not interested in being a disciple at all anymore. You need to get right. You need to do some business with God and and confess some things and repent, change your mind and change your life. Give you an opportunity to do that. And say, God, I'm sorry. Maybe you can say this in your mind. God, I'm sorry. And I know that my actions, my thoughts, my words, my life have wounded you as well. But I also know that your grace is so much more than all than all of the difficulty that I've brought on, that I've endured, and all the sin that I've committed. Your grace is always more. Your grace is always deeper and bigger. And so I confess my sin and know that you'll forgive me cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I want to come to a place where I commit in some way. I want to say, I want to follow you. Would you help me by your grace? I want to be a disciple of yours. I want to think differently. I want to live differently. And I need your help by your grace because it's not about just running fast. I can't do that. I'll always fail. I need you to be with me and I need you to meet me. I need your grace to teach me. 
Holy Spirit to work in my life. Some of you are in a place where you feel like God is maybe speaking to you very, very specifically about something, about what he wants you to do. Maybe not for the rest of your life, but maybe so. Maybe for the next month, maybe for the next few years. You feel like God is beginning to speak to you very, very specifically. You don't know what to do with that. You don't know how to react to that. You could pray something like this with me now in your heart or even out loud if you want. Say, God, I'm listening. I'm listening. But I also confess that I'm really, really good at misunderstanding. So I want you to be clear. I want you to show me your will for my life in your word. I want you to speak it to my heart through your spirit. And I want to follow you. I want to say yes to whatever you have for me. Even if it's uncomfortable, I want to say yes. So would you speak clearly to me? Very, very clearly. Rescue me from misunderstanding and give me the grace to follow you and say yes.